But first, let's kick it off with the uh, the bungling at the border. I mean, this is just, you talk about a monumental government screw-up. All those people who hopped down to the United States to buy some gas and groceries, just like the government told them to do, and then they get whacked with $5,700 fines. You know, hopefully they'll get that money back, but some people had extra costs too, like staying in hotels and buying PCR tests they were told they didn't need. Let's check in with Dan Kelly now, president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Hi, Dan. Hey, good morning. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on. This PCR test requirement that's still in place at the border right now, I mean, we're told they're getting rid of it for short trips starting next week. I mean, they, What's the point of waiting here to get rid of this thing next week? Do you think they should have done it a lot sooner? Oh, yeah, and, and not just for the short trips. We've created this bizarre policy where we're now the only ones that are able to use uh, to, to come in uh, to Canada without the PCR test to skip that step will be fully vaccinated Canadians uh, that are returning from short trips to the U.S. So that excludes uh, bringing in Americans to Canada to, uh, to, to go skiing, to, uh, to, to go shopping. So we've created this one-way policy that will encourage Canadians to go south to do cross-border shopping but prevent the reciprocal benefit of having Americans, fully vaccinated Americans, I'll add, uh, to come to Canada. Oh, uh, no. That makes no sense. Yeah, could it, that make things worse rather than better, in your opinion? Well, this is just it. I, be, I yeah. absolutely think the policy will make it worse than, than even the present state. So, uh, look, if we're going to waive this policy, we should waive it for all fully vaccinated border crossing in both directions. That means, you know, right now a Canadian can go into, can drive across the border with no test whatsoever, as long as they're fully vaccinated, uh, that right. makes sense. But we should also, if we're gonna, if we're gonna have any testing, for goodness sakes, make it a rapid test. They're quick, they're easy. Also, probably do a better job of detecting COVID because they would be done minutes before you cross the border, as opposed to requiring it often three days in advance in order to get the data. I went to a wedding in Florida uh, not that long ago, but because of the testing regime, I was there for five days. I had to have the test before the wedding, <laughs> the wedding started. So the, my chances of coming back with COVID uh, were greater because the testing requirement was before the event I was at. It, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> okay. So, so right now, like, do you think, you know, what, what would you say to people who are listening to this and saying, well, wait a second, uh, they've got a lower vaccination rate against COVID in the United States than we have here in Canada. I'm still worried about this. Maybe we should keep these restrictions in place at the border. What would you say to that? Well, I would say that that would be a, a really a, a good argument if we were talking about welcoming all Americans into Canada at this moment, including the unvaccinated. But that's not on, on the table at all. We're right. only talking about fully vaccinated Canadians and fully vaccinated Americans crossing the border at this particular stage. So, gosh, if we add that requirement, if that remains in place, the testing regime uh, it seems like an artificial barrier. In fact, my own sense is that the PCR test has been required. The reason the government hasn't scrapped it altogether is because it serve, serves as a barrier to discourage people from traveling at, at its core. And how fair is that, that you, that you make basically traveling to go south for the winter uh, more expensive for middle-class families and, and only the wealthy can do it? 
Speaking of Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, they represent small business in Canada. Dan, it's uh, as I mentioned off the top, that we anticipate a big announcement coming from the B.C. government later today on paid sick days in our province, and there's been a, a very concerted campaign here by organized labour in B.C. They want 10 paid sick days a year, 10 per year. Uh, some people are saying, well, no, it should be three, maybe it should be five do you have any thoughts or concerns about that? Like, I've talked to business people who are worried about 10 paid sick days a year. Your thoughts? Oh, man, this is, I mean, talk about terrible timing. Businesses in British Columbia have been through rail blockades. Then they were through all the pandemic-related restrictions. And now we're dealing with major infrastructure breakages. My members across Canada, small business owners, including in British Columbia, are hanging on by their fingernails. Is this the time? to start adding significant brand new costs to these businesses that are barely able to hang on right now. Talk about a pile on Canada pension plan premiums are going up on January 1st. Uh, Subsidy programs from the federal government are essentially ending. We're going to get details on that later this afternoon as well. Um, And yet, and yet now we're going to start to, to tack on another significant bill. This, this adds thousands and thousands of dollars of expenses to every business. And, and if we're going to do this, we've got to make sure that the costs are kept reasonable and that for small employers, we don't believe that they should be facing these costs at all. Certainly not right now. Yeah, when I talk to the labor leaders in British Columbia, and they've been, they've been guests on the show here in the past, and they're campaigning for 10 paid sick days a year, this would be employer paid sick days off work. They say, well, actually, there's nothing to worry about that the concerns that are being voiced by Canadian Federation of Independent Business and other business organizations are overblown. It's actually going to be fine because, you know, it's actually going to be better for business because this way you won't have people coming in sick to work who otherwise wouldn't get paid. And then you, then you make your whole staff sick when everyone gets sick in the office. I mean, are you, are you buying that, that uh, argument? I, I think there is certainly a point, and I, I do believe that employers have moved a long way uh, over the last number of years. Yes, it's true. Years ago, the message from employers was drag your butt into work regardless of how you were feeling. But yeah. but that's not a smart policy either, and most employers do try to work this out with their staff. They find, like, they may not have paid sick days, but they'll they'll switch shifts with, with people. They'll find informal ways of trying to provide that relief to the worker to be able to stay home and then, and then come in and earn some income, supplement their shifts one way or the other. Legislating this, though, is a big concern and has with it many unintended consequences. I don't know anybody who doesn't know, <laughs> who doesn't know someone who has uh, claimed to be sick because they want an extra day off. Uh, and, and gosh, if, you know, right now there is at least a cost to doing that. Uh, if you don't have paid sick days uh, paid by your employer, if we now make that a legislative, uh, a legislative initiative, we believe in many respects for some, this will turn into extra vacation time. Dan, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. Anytime. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about yesterday's speech from the throne in Ottawa. It was the first speech from the throne by new governor general Mary Simon in the speech, generally kind of going over a lot of the liberals 
election platform from the recent election. Uh, the speech on the, from the throne focusing on affordability, promising more housing and child care in Canada. Uh, the Governor General also had this to say about building a green economy in Canada. Have a listen. This is the moment for bolder climate action. Building a resilient economy means investing in people, but the work does not stop here. After all, growing the economy and protecting the environment go hand in hand. By focusing on innovation and good green jobs and by working with like-minded countries, we will build a more resilient, sustainable and competitive economy. Okay, Governor General Mary Simon, yesterday in the House of Commons, as the Liberal government of Justin Trudeau begins uh, the new the new term in power, let's discuss now what a great panel we've assembled for you. Randeep Sarai on the line, Liberal MP for Surrey Centre, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Randeep, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Oh, that's great to have you again. Also on the line is Dan Albus. Dan is a conservative MP, Central Okanagan, Similkami, Nicola, and I'm pleased to welcome Dan back to the show. Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Mike, and congrats, Randeep, on your election. Thank okay. you, Dan. Okay, very, very, ple- very uh, congenial. That's a good start. Okay, Randeep, let me go to you first. Give me your thoughts on, on the throne speech. Like Some people were saying that this was a a kind of an underwhelming throne speech in a lot of ways. I mean, it was not a lot, lot new in there. It seemed like more of a kind of a, a rehash of the election platform. But your thoughts? Well, look, uh, we, we went for a mandate and we got a mandate. And uh, the throne speech uh, reflects what we had promised in our, in our election. And uh, those are uh, to kind of finish the fight against COVID-19, the vaccines uh, uh, rollout, especially for, for younger children, 5 to 11, and those that are still getting it to help build the economy and, and make it more resilient to, uh, you know, have a strong climate action plan and to make our communities more safer. So those were... Uh, those are priorities, including reconciliation and uh, uh, and, and our commitments to, and, and fulfillment of those promises in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So these are the things that we, we promise to do, and these are what are in the theme of the uh, throne speech. And, uh, and and we also have to work on, obviously, what's happening in British Columbia uh, with, with the, the floods and the, uh, uh, the direct... Uh, evidence of climate change and and we have to make sure that uh, we build better and we help those that are in need right now. Dan Dan Albus, your thoughts on the throne speech? Well, we had a $600 million election uh, at a time where British Columbia was on fire. Uh, And, you know, at the time we were saying like all of these issues that Randeep just talked about were things we were talking about in Parliament until Justin Trudeau decided he wanted an election. And now we've waited two whole months to basically receive a very short speech from the throne that really talks about the same old talking points. So look, you know, right now I'm hearing from my constituents and for those that aren't affected by the flood, and and, and obviously I have communities that are drastically affected, but, uh, you know, they're talking about inflation. They're talking about higher energy prices at the gas pumps, uh, you know, to heat their homes and higher food costs. And yesterday, the government showed a tenure to all of those things. So this is not a serious government that's talking about 
about the issues that our constituents want us to talk about. And, you know, on climate change, they still haven't even planted, started planting the two billion tree promise. Look, every year, 300 million plus trees get planted in British Columbia. My own family has planted more trees uh, than the Liberal government has in the past two years, uh, you know, on that tree commitment of two billion trees. And we have lots of places that they can do it. So this government, it talks a lot, Mike, and it does not Uh seem to ever deliver or even focus on what people want them to. Randy Sarai, what do you say to that? Well, I think, first of all, we have a climate plan, and like uh, uh, the Conservatives are still trying to decide whether there is a climate uh, crisis in the world. Uh, we were there for COP24. We committed, and in this throne speech, uh, it commits to getting to a net-zero electric economy, to reducing carbon emissions uh, faster and quicker, and getting to a net-zero economy. Uh, on affordability, we have a commitment for $10 a day childcare, which the Conservatives have said they will not support and do not. Uh, we've got commitments with uh, most of the provinces uh, with two left uh, including uh, the territories and uh, uh, those are direct impacts on people's lives those will reduce childcare costs by 50 percent in the first year and going down to ten ten dollars a day uh, going into the year five these are direct things that people will save by we are doing a national housing strategy and in that we're doing a first-time home buyer incentive a new rent-to-own program and we're going to reduce the the closing costs for first-time home buyers we're also got a housing accelerator fund uh, to help and motivate municipalities to uh, build quicker build denser and and build faster uh, so that we can reduce that supply crunch that we're having in municipalities uh, so it is a very robust system a robust throne speech and plan to help canadians uh, whether it's financially uh, to buy their first home or whether it's to uh, protect their environment for the children of the future. Okay, Dan Albus, when you take a look at those commitments on child care and housing, I mean, you're focusing on affordability. Does that not help people out? Well, again, for for parents who have children now on wait lists, like Premier Horgan has said, it's going to take years for this $10 a day program to happen. So for the government to be putting that out in the window, uh, when people are facing rising gas and food and heating prices, then what does it do for a senior? What does it do for a farmer? And, you know, when it comes to uh, climate change, net zero by 2050, that's, you know, decades away. They can't even plant two billion trees. And when it comes to housing, ask any millennial if they're better off with this liberal government. They've had six years, and you know what? Uh, they, they still keep making the same promises over and over. They, th- this government does not like the private sector, okay. Mike. They okay. don't like working with municipalities. How are they going to build that supply without them? So we're going to keep mm. pressing the government to actually get real when it comes to housing, when it comes to affordability issues. And rather than just keep promising the moon, let's just start delivering basics. Okay, let's listen to another clip here from the throne speech yesterday. Governor General Mary Simon here speaking in the House of Commons yesterday on improving health care. Let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. There is work to be done on accessibility, on care in rural communities, on delayed procedures, on mental health and addictions treatment, on long-term care, on improving data collection across health systems to inform future decisions and get the best possible results. All right, Governor General Mary Simon speaking yesterday in the throne speech. My guests are Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP from Surrey, Dan Albus, Conservative MP from the Okanagan. Randeep Sarai, so she's talking there about about health care, which is a, a key concern for everyone coming out of this pandemic. Your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, coming out of this pandemic, we've uh, seen the pressures on our on our nurses and care providers in this country, and 
we need to help them, whether it's uh, with employment strategies, whether it's with uh, federal sick leave that we're uh, coming up with, uh, uh, whether it is giving them more protections uh, while they're working. So we'll be working with the provinces uh, directly to help ensure that, whether it's uh, mental health, uh, there's a, a really bold commitment to help uh, with services. Uh, in the last five-year uh, health accord with British Columbia, we gave $700 million in addition to the health accord to help with mental health uh, and de-addiction services. We will continue to do that. And I think it's uh, uh, more evident in, in the last two years in what we've faced that those that provide those services need to be taken care of and we need more robust services and better standards, especially for long-term care facilities okay. and for the addiction services. Dan Albus. So when you talk to premiers, all the premiers agree that they wanted to see a change in transfers. That's something that the Conservatives ran the last uh, last election and something we promised in our Canada's recovery plan. You can't transform the system that is so stressed out from COVID-19 if you don't give them more money. That's something this government continues to push back with side deals that, you know, three lefts make a right. You know, that's not what we need if we're going to be able to support people in our healthcare system. And on addictions, they have done very little. Look, I have Kelowna. Uh, I have Princeton. They, these these communities, uh, you know, may not be the biggest as Vancouver, but they have the same problems. And you know what? What were people saying? They liked the conservatives were actually proposing treatment centers to complement provincial programs. We would have put up 50 treatment centers right across the country to deal with the opioid crisis. What does this government do? It dithers and it says, oh, look at what we've done with this province on this side deal. If we want to transform our system, we can need to give our healthcare professionals the tools. We need right. to give it people People with addictions, actual beds. These guys continue just to simply talk around the issue and not deal with the concerns that premiers have. Randy, can you reply to that briefly, and then we'll fit a short break in here. Oh, when I took over uh, uh, Surrey Centre in 2015, there was no safe consumption sites. The Conservative government blocked them. Uh, uh, there were the addiction deaths uh, were happening because there weren't safe consumption sites. They put every roadblock into it. Uh, they did not give the tools that the provincial health authorities had asked for in the fight against opioids. We banned pill presses. We legalized prescription-grade heroin. We gave the tools to the provinces exactly how they asked uh, so they can fight this war uh, uh, and, and crisis and, and mental health issue. Uh, so I think we've done more in that. We've given, a, like I said, over $700 million to the province in the last five years, and we'll continue to do so again, and we'll continue to help uh, those that, that need the services right away. All right, welcome back. My guests are Liberal MP Randeep Sarai, Conservative MP Dan Albus. We're talking about yesterday's speech from the throne. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's take a couple of phone calls here. Frank in Vancouver. Hi, Frank. Hey, how you doing? Just a comment on uh, the throne speech and the disaster that is the Liberal government. I mean, there's no mention of inflation. I mean, the Liberal government's reaction to the COVID crisis has caused this inflation. Uh, you know, prices are out of control. It's like they don't have a grasp of the basic uh, concept of economics. And okay, the Randy, what, Randy, and what about, the chickens what about are going to come home to roost. Thank you. Well, Randy. Well, first of all, I disagree. It's on page 12. It starts with inflation as a challenge that countries all over the world are facing. So uh, it's actually addressed in the throne speech, and I would ask the caller to probably have a look at it. And two major priorities for us 
to fight that is, is housing and child care. And we're going to do everything we can to reduce that. A lot of other inflationary measures are uh, a, a product of supply chain disruptions uh, globally that are happening due to COVID and otherwise. And we're trying to uh, uh, iron out those wrinkles and, and ensure that we can get back to a more competitive climate. We've also had um, a lack of employees uh, due to flight restrictions and otherwise and uh, bringing in talent uh, from globally around the world. And those are opening up now. And we're going to commit to, to fighting those challenges by getting a good workforce. And uh, we've already created a million new jobs in the last while and coming back to pre-pandemic uh, uh, unemployment rates, uh, which are were the record low ever in this country. So I think uh, combined with with good fruit and policy and what Canadians are doing, we're going to head in the right direction. D- Dan Albus, uh, inflation top of mind for a lot of people right now. Your thoughts? Well, you know, I'm glad that Randeep is actually able to say the word inflation because it doesn't seem like the government wants to. Mary Ng was on a national news show on Sunday when she was asked about that. She's the one that actually is our international trade minister, and she refused to even mention supply. Look, look, government policies like the the, like the, uh, the listener had said, uh, their spending are feeding into this, and their programs actually have made it so there's labor shortages as well. So Randeep and his government need to take ownership of the issue. They need to actually get Christia Freeland to start talking about the, what things the government will do to tackle these things. Because I tell you, when I speak to my constituents, they're asking about why are, why are, why are things like gasoline and heating my home becoming more expensive? Why is this government always trying to find a way uh, to make it more expensive, not less? Hey, Dan, how are government policies creating labor shortage? shortages right now? Well, again, we had a number of programs throughout the pandemic, whether it be the, the CRB or the CERB, uh, where we had employers saying, look, we actually have jobs that people can do. Um, the, we're, we're, people are not taking the work that's available. Instead, they're collecting those benefits. So, so that, you're saying... Like added the, to it. So and you know programs, what, Mike? We, we yeah. need to see more discussion about, because the government has put forward a new set of, of different programs, and while a time where employers are struggling just to keep their stores open. So, so you're saying what that the CERB and programs like that were too generous that the conservatives would what you would not have done the CERB no, well, or you we, would we have cut it off. We supported some targeted benefits, Mike. But again, yeah. you have to listen to the business community, and this this particular government seems to always t- uh, tune them out when people are saying that we cannot get workers to come to the Okanagan and to do and to to pick fruit. There's a major uh, you know uh, hit to our economy and to our food safety. Look, we have the Fraser Valley right now, uh, what's happening in Abbotsford, that is our breadbasket. And, you know, we have, uh, you know, so many different farmers that are they're having to euthanize okay. their animals. This is going to hit us. And Randy, the government is silent about these issues. Randy, your well, response. Yeah, the funny thing is I voted for these sort of benefits. And, and let me just tell you, uh, uh, Canadians weren't the ones uh, predominantly going to pick cherries in the Okanagan or pick fruit, or nor are they doing that in the Valley. Those are international workers that were coming in. And uh, exactly because of COVID and the restrictions and travel and uh, from different places is why we had those shortages. So if you're trying to say that people were taking CERB and not working in those farms, I think that's incorrect. Uh, no, no, that's not true. But again, you, the policies that, that you're coming hang on, hang on, hang on. is making it difficult for people uh, you know, to connect to the workforce. Hang on, guys. You didn't listen to the business. Tourism, travel, and those that have been hit hard should not get support, then I think you should be open and say that because those are the ones that is our first bill uh, tabled uh, in the house where we're going to help those industries that are either hit by a uh, 
public health safety notice, or uh, they've been held hard like the tourism, recreational uh, sectors uh, like Whistler okay. uh, uh, and, our, and our mountains. Mike, they would hard. jam these programs through, and they didn't go through the proper process of scrutinizing. And, and when small business and even large businesses said, we have concerns about these policies. The government just tuned them out. So, yeah, I'm not saying it's the only reason. Supply chain, government spending, uh, and government policies, just like the, the yeah. listener has said, have raised the cost of living. And the government still hasn't addressed this. And that's Gen- where we, we will push them to make life more affordable. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the disasters now that have hit our province in the last few months. And when you consider the deadly heat dome killing hundreds as temperatures soared to record levels, the wildfires that forced evacuations, and in the tragic case of Lytton, incinerated an entire town, burning it to the ground. And now the flooding and the landslides that have flooded out communities and farms and displaced 18,000 people. We're told that these type of events may become more common in the days and months ahead. British Columbia is regarded by many as the most beautiful place in the world, especially by the people who live here. But with these disasters and the potential for more of them to come, could people start to reconsider uh, that opinion. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Coleman Molnar, who's a writer, journalist, and marketer. And I highly recommend the column that he just wrote about this issue for the Globe and Mail called Paradise Lost, Why I'm Questioning Life as a BC Resident. And it's a really fascinating read. I welcome him to the show. Coleman, thank you for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, I just I read your article. I thought it was really well written. I, I encourage the, the listeners to check it out, for sure. Well, let's talk about your experience here living in British Columbia and how... Did, did, you, grow, did you grow up in, uh, in Merritt, right? Like, is that your hometown, Merritt, B.C.? I did, yeah. I, uh, I grew up on a cattle ranch 30 kilometers outside of the city, so I'm a, I'm a reformed cowboy. I uh, <laughs> cut my teeth in the journalism industry in Toronto and have since, since moved back. Right. Okay. That's I, yeah. Now I seem to be Mister BC Doom and Gloom these last this last week. <laughs> well, I've noticed that your your column, your op ed in the Globe and Mail, did get a huge reaction, and a lot of people are applauding you for writing it. And others others think that maybe it, yeah, it is a bit doom and gloom on BC. But I, I think you're just writing from the heart here. Now you grew up in Merritt, and then when did you move to Toronto? Uh, I moved to Toronto in 2012 after I finished J school and uh, got my start in the in, in the industry. Met my my partner in life and business there. We we traveled around in a van for a couple of years. Started in 2016, sort of working remotely. Uh, you know, we 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 write in various ways, um, and we did that for a couple of years. Landed in Vancouver actually, and then got on the property ladder by 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 buying in Merritt uh, right. in, in 20 and 2018. And now we're in Kamloops. Right, and you decided to buy in Merritt, I know because obviously that was where you grew up, and you had great memories of, of growing up there, but also the property values were more a lot more affordable, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a great quality of life combined with uh, a good good property value, so, so it's a good investment, and it's a great place to live, so it, it totally made sense for us at the time, and, and, and to be honest, it still does. You know, I put a, I put a question mark in that, in that headline of mine, Paradise Lost, because I'm, I'm still... I'm still questioning this, right? You know, it's been a, an eye-opener these last uh, six months, these two, two yeah. chaotic events that have happened. But, but I'm, you know, I'm not, ready to, I'm not ready to quit on my home here, not, not by a long shot. I'm just, you know, like everybody else, I'm, re- 
I'm reassessing. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about what you went through with the disaster. So let's go back to the heat dome and the wildfires. What what was that like in uh, in in Merritt where you were living there? Uh, we're actually up in Kamloops, um, but it was a similar situation here. You yeah. know, we had um, many people coming from neighboring communities that were displaced. Um, so that was, you know, we had the smoke, which was horrendous for a few months in a row, but nothing compared to anybody living in a community where they were, you know, forced to leave their home. Um, we had a lot of stress from coming from my, my, my parents, my dad's ranch in Merritt. He has a ranch that I mentioned before, about 30 kilometers between Merritt and Logan Lake. And uh, there was a fire creeping up the valley just over the mountain from him that had him evacuate his property in the middle of the night one night. So that was, that was a very worrying, worrying moment. But yeah, the, the stress, the stress lasted, you know, a good number of months and then being cooped up inside and unable to recreate outside really impacted us, uh, our day-to-day life. Yeah. I remember speaking at the height of the wildfire, speaking to people in Kamloops in that area. And yeah, it really was that the smoke was, was brutal at that time. So you had a uh, a home in Merritt that you had rented out, and then you were uh, living in Kamloops. W- was your home in Merritt um, affected by the fires at all? No, it wasn't affected by the fires. Uh, we were lucky in that sense. Most of Merritt was lucky in that sense. I mean, it was covered in smoke and ash was coming down, but but uh, nobody was burning. Um, and and luckily, the same with the floods. Uh, we were spared. The water came up about a about a block and a half from our house. On, on two or three sides uh, close to the river because we are downtown in the lowlands there. And uh, we learned, of course, afterward that we didn't have the inland flood insurance that we would have required uh, had we been hit. So that was a real blessing that we were spared. Many of our neighbors were not. Um, and now we, our renters are, okay. are not there, obviously. Uh, but, Home- uh, Let's continue my discussion now with my guest, Coleman Molnar, who is a, a journalist. We're talking about his experience living in the B.C. interior during the heat dome, the wildfires, and now the flooding. And uh, where are you living now? You're back in Vancouver? We were in Kamloops, actually, downtown. I'm okay. just sitting in my, in my house here. Right. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about um, sort of the theme of the, the op-ed that you wrote in the Globe and Mail and whether this is like paradise lost for you going back yeah. to the home where you grew up and questioning whether, you know, it says why I'm questioning life as a BC resident. So is that yeah. something you're turning over in your mind? Like you're thinking like maybe you would move out of BC because of these events? Uh, you know, I, I definitely want to check my, my privilege here because I recognize that I do have a choice to work anywhere. You know, that's, that's something that I'm very lucky to be able to do. A lot of people do not have that choice. So it's right off the top. Yes. I, I, we are considering that, um, but we know how lucky we are uh, to be able to do so. You know, basically, Mike, when, you know, now when I, when I go for a walk in the woods, like I did, you know, where I go to ride my bike or, or do any of the same number of things that I do outside regularly, um, and I, you know, I look at the land, I see, of course, the beauty, and, like, I'm bullish on BC. You know, I tell all my friends from the rest of the world, the rest of Canada, like, well, the interior of BC, keep your eye on that place. You know, it's going to... It's, in our lifetime, I still believe it's going to be a real tourism hub. You know, the First Nations communities are, are bringing forth their culture in a way like never before, um, at a rate like never before. Um, and, but, 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 but on top of this now with these disasters, when I, when I, when I look at this, this natural beauty, I'm, I'm struck by like a foreboding sense of, of like destructive power that's stored in the land as well, right? And, and Mother Nature seems to be angry right now. Um, 
And so uh, we, we build these wooden houses on top of her and they're burnable and they're floodable and, you know, you can shake them right to the ground with enough force. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's all just got me questioning, you know, our right, our right to be here. Um, the way the way we are currently where, where would you move to i mean if you left bc where would you go back to toronto oh man <laughs> yeah, why would you want to move, why would you want to move back there my god well, exactly right and I, I i might be happy until until january and then i'd regret my decision for the next six yeah. months as, as, as things continue thought out slowly slowly um so so my, my you know it, it's just a question right i don't i still think this is paradise i don't think it's lost yet I just think that uh, there's there's something shaking in paradise here that things are changing. I'm taking a look at your your column online in the Globe and Mail website, and it's got almost 500 comments and, and counting. So you, I think you really touched a nerve with with what you wrote here. What has the reaction been like overall? Like just just scrolling through some of the comments right now, I see some people supporting you and agreeing with you, and others and others saying like, "Wow, this is a bit of a gloom and doom outlook," like you said earlier. But what has been the response? What's the response been like to it? Yeah, you know, the conversation turns pretty quickly to uh, climate change and our our role there. You know, when it comes to the wildfires, like, <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no real solution. Uh, same with the floods, I guess. You can't, you can't sort of change this stuff immediately. So people, people get talking on that pretty quickly. Um, and, 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 you know, I, even though I did try to check my, my, my privilege as best I could, people are quick to point out that not everybody has this choice. And that yeah. people will live where they live, and that people have been living here, the families have been living here for thousands of years. This is their home, and whether it burns, floods, or anything else, um, that's not going to change. Yeah, and, 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 the- and I appreciate that. You know, I really appreciate all the perspective. It's an opinion piece. I didn't draw any facts into it. I wrote from the heart. It, it came out really quickly and naturally. Um, it's just what I'm feeling. Yeah, and. You know, when it comes to the impacts of climate change, we're ob- obviously feeling it acutely here in British Columbia right now. But you know, you feel it everywhere, right? I mean, if okay. even if you're back in Toronto, some of the the summers, the the heats, the heat waves there can be like sweltering and insufferable too. So, um, you know, it doesn't. I guess you know, it doesn't matter where you live, you're going to feel it to some degree, would you not? Yeah, I think a lot of those people in the comments were just Canadians reminding me, "Hey, bud, we we got it over here too. Don't worry." You know? Yeah. You're not the only one who has to deal with the uh, Mother Nature's anger from time to time. Right. Okay, well, you certainly got a lot of people talking uh, with the article that you wrote, Coleman. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.